0: Let me encourage you to go to Mark's Gospel, and uh, you would think, since I'm starting the series, I would say Mark 1, but you'd be wrong. Mark 10. Now, some of you are getting hopeful and saying, this will be the best series ever, fastest series ever, Start in chapter 10. Now, there's a theme verse I kind of want to talk about today, Mark 10. So if you're using the Bible provided for you there, it's going to be, I'm going to be on page 846. You know, as we sang the last song, one of the things that uh, I thought came to my mind, you know, congregational singing is, is very important. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people here, and we've all had different weeks and backgrounds and experiences and things like that. And as I'm singing that song, and it was just a beautiful song, and... Uh, um, I I thought there's probably people here that are having a hard time singing this song. Um, You know, maybe it was a a difficult week for them. And then I thought that's the the reason why congregational singing is so important is because if, if there's someone here that has a hard time singing those words or believing those words, they need to hear the brothers and sisters reaffirming that truth to them. And so let me just use this as an example to say this is why we sing together. And it's important for us to sing out because there are times where we just, our faith seems so weak, right? And there's times where it's like, it just feels like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if my faith can't be shaken, as we just saying. But we need each other to remind each other these truths. And so it's a, this is a good reason why we sing together. And so we sing out for not only just our own heart's worship, but also to encourage other people. So just a reminder there. As we turn our attention to Mark's gospel, um, as I mentioned, I'm not sure how long this series is going to last. I'm still mapping it all out. But I felt that we need to do some type of introductory material, go over some of that, and, uh, and then maybe talk about a theme verse so that we have a kind of a... Uh, an anchor point that as we're going through this book, we can, we can come back to. And so that's what this message is about. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God's blessing. I'm going to pause again and pray because we really always need to uh, acknowledge and affirm our dependency on God, uh, particularly when we're opening His Word and saying, okay, this is what God's Word says. We just want to make sure we're, we're depending on God. So I'm going to pray and uh, uh, I would you know, appreciate if, in your spirit, you prayed for me as, uh, as I pray out loud. Father, I just ask now, in the presence of my friends here, my brothers, my sisters, um, that when, when we look at this gospel, uh, as we're beginning this series, I pray that it would be helpful. I pray that, it would, that you would continue to use this gospel to do work in my heart, and also in the lives of the people who are gathered here. And so I pray for good communication. Now I pray that I would be accurate and clear and it would be faithful to your word and that above all, you would receive glory and honor. And at the end of the day, I pray that we leave here saying, Jesus is great and uh, we are amazed at him. And so that's our goal And so we just pray that you would accomplish that by your spirit. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Um, Have you you ever considered or thought about how the invention of the camera has has really changed the world? Um, There's just some iconic pictures that have taken place. Um, I just finished reading a book, David McCullough's book on the Wright Brothers, and it was a fascinating book. David McCall's a great writer. And um, this is a, a famous picture of uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright uh, taking off Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And uh, it's just captured a moment in American history that um, was defining. I mean, this is like early 1900s, like 1906, I like probably maybe 1903. And uh, just 20 years later, Lindenberg will go across the ocean, okay? But 20 years prior to Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, the first, it was this first flight, amazing, a short time, It's iconic picture, makes you feel like you're, you were there. There's another picture, uh, Muhammad Ali um, over Sunny Liston, 1965, um, you know, uh, he just beat the heavyweight champion. This is one of those famous pictures there. He's towering over his, uh, his, his opponent there saying, get up and fight, get up and fight. You know, just capture that moment. You can just see the uh, aggression in Muhammad Ali. You can see uh, the expressions of people in the crowd. It makes you feel like we're there. A couple others that came to my mind. Iwo Jima, um, this, this is just a famous, famous Uh, picture, a similar one in modern day, was 9-11. We we see a couple pictures from 9-11 there. Um, You know, just, I remember when I I see particularly the picture on the left there of President Bush at the time with this fireman, I I, I don't know his name, Um, I'm instantly taken back to where I was on 9-11. I was in Canada, okay, and I was seeing my wife, she wasn't my wife yet. I was hoping she would become my wife. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, I was there. I remember the feeling of being out of the country and, you know, all this happening. And it was, it was terrible. So I look at that picture and instantly I'm there. You know, pictures a simple, with a simple press of a button on a camera can capture a snapshot that will have the power to bring us into the moment, remind us of the past, even awaken up other senses such as uh, feelings or taste or even smells. You see a picture of a place you visited and, and, or a picture of maybe grandma's house and you smell bread. It's just amazing. Snapshots to do this. There's another picture here that's on the front of your bulletin, um, and I, I put it in, in the slideshow here. Uh, this picture here, the, the one, the next one coming up here, um, that takes me back to France. I took that picture... Uh, when I was in France this year, and instantly I just, I, I remember where I was. I remember Anouk's dad was off to the left here, and, and you know, the kids were over here, and power snapshots. So what I hope to do today, you say, why are you going through this? The reason I'm going through this is what I hope to do today is just give you three quick snapshots, okay, that will help us understand the gospel of Mark, or, or, or begin to understand the gospel of Mark. And then uh, with these snapshots, through as we go through the series, we can come back to them. So what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about a snapshot of Mark himself. Then I'm going to talk about a snapshot of Mark's gospel as opposed to the other gospels. And then I'm going to give you a snapshot from Mark 10. So it's going to take a couple minutes to get to where I ask you to turn. About uh, Mark's Jesus. How does he present Jesus? Okay, so that's the goal today, and the goal is to get us into this series so that we have a better understanding of the book of Mark as we go through um, next several weeks into months. So let's look at Mark, the person or Mark's background. First, the snapshot. You know, knowing just a little bit about an author, at least his context, can help us read his works or his book with better understanding. For example, knowing that the command in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, to not forsake the assembly of yourselves together is in the context of persecution because it says not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together as the habit of some He says, don't do that, knowing that the context of whoever that author was, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, whoever it was when he was writing that in the context of this persecution, boy, that gives much more punch to that command, doesn't it? And the same could be true with with Paul. Remember, Paul, he said at one point, he says, I want you to pray for kings and emperors. But if you understand who the king was, you understand the significance of that. It was Nero in his case. And so here he is, he's saying, pray for the people who is persecuting him. And so understand a little bit about the author, understanding a little bit about the background or the context, help us understand the book more. And so while the Bible is breathed out by God and inspired, God uses human agents along with their backgrounds and personalities to write the scriptures. And so I felt that knowing a little bit about Mark could be helpful as we begin to study his book or his gospel. The first thing that I want to point out about Mark is that he is known as Barnabas's cousin, according to Colossians chapter 4. Barnabas, of course, was one of the early Christians, and and he was one that uh, was very wealthy and sold land and and gave it to the church. And then he also was uh, a first uh, partner for Paul in the first missionary journey. And so uh, this man, Mark, was Barnabas's cousin. So he was connected to someone who's connected to the church. He most likely, secondly, was Peter's assistant. And we get that from 2 Peter chapter 4, uh, or excuse me, chapter 5, of this idea of where it says he calls him my son. And I'm not going to get into all the the internal evidence of of why we think Mark used uh, Peter as a source for his material, but just understand that it probably was that that was the case where uh, Mark got most of his his information uh, from uh, Peter. The church gathered, according to Acts chapter 12, uh, in Mark's mom's house, at least for some of their gatherings. In fact, if you remember the story in Acts 12, remember this is when Peter here, remember he was in prison and the people were praying for his release? Well, that prayer meeting that they were praying for, Peter's release, was Mark's mom's house, according to Acts. And the reason why we think there's a close connection between Barnabas, excuse me, Mark and, and Peter, one of the reasons is because when Peter comes and he is released, they answer the prayer. Remember, God answers the prayer and he sets Peter free and he comes to the gate. Remember this? Okay. And who meets him at the gate? Remember? It was the servant girl, right? Okay. The servant girl of Mark's mom's house meets him at the gate. His name was Rhoda. She meets her at the gate. And remember what happens? He says, She's like, Who's there? And, I say, and then. He's speaking to him and then she recognizes his voice. And so she runs back um, to the, the the leaving him at the gate, which is a very funny part of the story. And he, he goes she goes to the prayer meeting and she's like he's been released. And they're like, stop, stop, stop. We're praying for his relief. Quit quit, quit interrupting us. And they're like, she's like, no, no, no. He's right there. Stop. You're seeing a ghost. You know, we're praying that God does a miracle here. Stop. Be quiet. You know, and so we see this pretty humorous interaction. there. But what we can take from that, there's a lot we can learn from that, but there's a little historical background there is that the fact that the servant girl in the house recognized Peter's voice. Well, how would she you know that? Well, he probably, he obviously was there a lot. And so there's this deep connection between Mark and Mark's household and Peter. We also know that he was part of Paul's, Mark was, Paul's uh, first missions trip. Um, we see that again in Acts. Um, and he, he accompanies them for the first part, Barnabas, Paul, and then uh, uh, Mark was, was accompanying them. We also know that for some undisclosed reason he he leaves the trip early. Mark stops and he quits. And we don't know exactly why, but we know it was enough that Paul said, I, I don't want him traveling with me anymore. And so there was there was enough of a of a of a of a bad reason or enough of a insignificant reason, at least in Paul's estimation, that he said, I can't count on him anymore. And so he failed. And so, and this was the cause of Paul and Barnabas' separation. If you read in that text, Barnabas says, no, we need to give him a chance, and he keep coming along, and Paul says, absolutely not. And so Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus, and, and Paul then takes Silas, and then they go on their mission journey. We really don't hear much about Barnabas and, and Mark much after that. But we do know that he ends up reconnecting with Paul in Colossians chapter 4, He's called a co worker. He's listed as a co worker of Paul. Same thing in Philemon, uh, verse 24. Uh, then, of course, you know, some of you will remember at the end of Paul's life, uh, he's writing his last book, 2 Second, Second Timothy, and he's in prison. And he's asking for things to be brought to them. And one of the things he says, he says, and send Mark, for he's useful to me. Okay? And so we don't know exactly all the, the, you know, the, 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 what happened in between there but somehow there was a restoration. Somehow Mark went from fast beginning, connected to Barnabas, connected to Peter, to failure, to them being reinstated. It's a little bit about his background. And, you know, I wanted to just bring that to our attention because, you know, there's there's, there's a few, there's a few, you know, positions of Mark's life here. You know, first he started well, then he faltered, then he finished well, and, I thought, I wonder, I wonder who in this room are in those different categories right now. Maybe some of you are, are starting well and, and things are going well. That's good. Press on. Maybe some of you are dealing with some faltering. Maybe your faith is lacking. Maybe the cares of this world are beginning to choke some things out or maybe it's just, you, you just don't know how you can continue on. You know, Mark was there, okay? He gave up. But then I wanted to point out that the story, the final chapter, wasn't written, though, and that he was restored. And so maybe you're in a position of you're supposed to be finishing well. So my question is, are you finishing well? You see how we can look at a life like this, and we can say, hey, is, is this, this is applicable to us. And so just looking, is this is introductory material, just so we can understand the feeling of the book and kind of what's going on. We need to understand a little bit about the author, but yeah, we can learn from that. So as you look at this, are you, are you, are you pressing forward and starting the, the race well? That's awesome if you are. If you're not, then you need to. Maybe you're in a position right now where it's, it's difficult. Let me just encourage you that you're not alone and you're not the only one to face that. Let me encourage you that we all need to finish well. So maybe you're, you're in the, you know, more towards the... the Second or the last chapters, or so of what we expect of a lifespan. Let me encourage you to finish well. Okay, just, just don't, don't, don't just, don't just stop. Um, one of the things uh, in the homiletics class that I taught in India. Um, I, I brought up the idea of conclusions and wanted to talk about conclusions. And, and, I, and I told the group that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grow in all this. As I'm teaching, I'm trying to grow in this, okay? And one of the things I said about conclusions, I said, the purpose of a conclusion of a sermon is not just to stop talking, okay? All right? There's, there's more to it than that, and that is you, you, you want to kind of bring it together and, and you, you know, kind of, you don't want to re-preach the sermon, but you want to, you want to bring it to a point and include. I bring that up to say the, the last few years of life and retirement years, they're not just a stop, okay? They're not just a, okay, done. No, there, there, there should be a finishing well, just like Mark was. So I want to point out a little bit about, just give you a snapshot, just a quick snapshot of mark's background who he is i want to give you an even faster snapshot if i can secondly of the gospel of mark okay and again i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because i want to save the bulk of our time for the last point of talking about mark's jesus but i wanted you to see here that uh, there's a few things about mark that you need to know about that i think are helpful number one is the oldest gospel of the four gospels that we have matthew mark luke and john Um, it's the oldest one that we have it was written first Probably was written right after Peter's death. Uh, we think Peter died around 67 AD uh, the near, uh, by the Nero persecution. Uh, church history says that Peter uh, was crucified, and that was his death. And he said he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. And uh, we don't know if that was for sure that that happened, but that's what church history has recorded for us. And so that was around 67 A.D., somewhere around that time. Uh, We think that it was written uh, between that time and 70 A.D. Uh, 70 A.D., of course, was the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, we still see Jerusalem in operation here, so we know it was before then. So it was right around this time. But it was the oldest one, the first one written. And in some ways, the reason why that's important is because he, he pioneers um, the gospel or the genre of the gospel. And you say, okay, now what do you mean by that? Because, you know, you know we look at what type of literature the gospels are and there's, there's different understandings in, in, about that. And, and what's really done is we've just kind of developed a new genre called gospel for it. Because they're not technically biographies, although you would expect them to be. Uh, uh, They're not biographies necessarily, uh, but they are theological works written biographically. And so what that does is it frees the author up from having to include all the information about a person that you normally would include in a biography. So for instance, in Mark's gospel, he doesn't talk about the, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ at all. Only Matthew and Luke do that. John and Mark choose not to. But he's still doing it biographically, and so there's a lot of things that are omitted, but yet he's, this, this genre called gospel is talking about the life of Christ and presenting the life of Christ with a theological purpose. And we're going to get to one of the reasons, or one of the theological purposes that I think that is. But he's very careful about this, but he's the first one to do this. And so this is one of the reasons why I think it's the shortest one. Uh, It's because he's just doing a short synopsis, and I think Matthew comes a little bit later on, Luke and John, of course, come later, and uh, they expand upon what Mark has started. Um, And I think it was primarily written to a different audience as well. Another thing about uh, this, in giving you the snapshot of Mark's gospel, something that will help us as we're going through it, is it's a very fast-paced gospel okay? So as you're reading through it, you're, you're going to see it just like story after story, and it just goes on. In fact, there's a word uh, that's translated most times, it's most often translated immediately uh, in Mark's gospel. That word, and sometimes it's, it's translated a couple different ways, but most of the time it's immediately. Um, That word appears like 41, 42 times in the 16 chapters. In fact, in chapter 1 alone, it's like 11 times, and immediately Jesus did this, and immediately went there, and immediately he went there, and you get this sense that Jesus was really busy, and he was working. In fact, we get the idea, there's there's two occasions, okay, where Mark points out that Jesus was too busy to even eat okay? That's a whole different feel that we get than reading like Mark's gospel, or excuse me, Matthew's gospel, or even Luke's gospel. And so this is the idea of action-packed, and it's moving from one thing to the next. and It centers primarily on the Galilean ministry of Jesus. There are more miracles recorded in Mark, even though it's the shortest gospel. Um, More miracles than the other gospels, even though it's shorter. And as I said, Jesus is portrayed as very busy. So it's a very fast-paced gospel. And one other thing that you'll probably notice as we go through, and this is the final part of the snapshot about the gospel I want to share, is that it's a highly emotive gospel. Um, you're going to see expressions of Jesus coming out that, that Paul, excuse me, that Mark talks about more than, and Mark will uh, explain things more because he's write, written primarily to a Gentile audience, and so he'll explain customs such as washing hands. Uh, which Matthew doesn't bother to do because he's writing, writing to a Jewish audience. But this idea of being emotive, there's, I, I can just think of a couple right now where Jesus is like, and he sighs, <sighs> before he responds. Uh, there's a reason for that, and one of the reasons is, is that one of the things that, one of the ways that Mark is presenting Jesus is as the suffering servant, and, and, and he's centering a lot on his humanity in, his, in this gospel. And so as we go through this, we're going to see the theme coming up. And so I just wanted to point these things out to you so that we can be on the lookout for that. And, and before I move on to the, um, the final uh, snapshot that I'd like to share with you this morning, I just want to point out that I hope that by looking at the, the different nuances of the book in the snapshot that I've just given you, I hope that you see and you have an appreciation for the beauty of God's Word and how God uses a variety of genres. I mean, just think of the care that God has taken to communicate His message to us. He's used different authors and different styles to communicate what He has for us. And I think that care should make us to stop and, and appreciate God's Word. Say that this is, he, he's, he's, he's worked very diligently to give us his word, to communicate his plan and who he is to us in a variety of different ways and different themes and different um, um, characteristics of the, the writings come out. And so that should make us appreciate God so much more. So I just want to point that out as we're looking at the snapshot of Mark's gospel and how it compares to the others. But the bulk of the time that I want to spend today and, and, and is Mark chapter 10, and that is a snapshot of who Jesus is, okay? Who, who's this Jesus that Mark points out? Mark 10 is a pivotal point in the book. Um, we will get to it eventually, and we'll, we'll teach through it in a, in a more detailed way, most likely here, but I just want to point out something first of all. And, and that is what's going on. The, the verse I want to center on is verse 45. But before I read that, let's look at verse 35, okay? Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, this is Jesus, they came to Jesus, and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I just got to point out for a second here, um, just think about the audacity of these guys. Okay, it's almost like, and, and this is going to come into play in a, in a minute here. Think about the switch here. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the one in charge. But then they come and says, we want you to do what we tell you to do here. Okay, just think of the audacity there. Okay, so he says, what do you want me to do? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, and I, I just, I, I can't contain myself here because, and I was going to say this when I get here, but this whole idea of he's saying, you, you don't know what you're asking. And the cup, can you drink the cup? Can you think of another time when Jesus talked about a cup? He says, let this cup pass from me, if it be your will. Remember this? Where's he at? He's in the garden, Right? When he says, you're asking to be on my right hand and my left hand. You don't know what you're asking for. There would be two people on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. They would be on a cross next to him, right? He says, you don't know what you're asking here. Okay, just, you, this is just, a, just kind of a glimpse of how Mark plays this out. This is a beautiful, is a beautiful gospel. Anyway, moving on, he says this, and they said to him, we're able... And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, uh, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Okay, so the other disciples, they hear of this. So there's 12 disciples. And James and John are saying, Hey, let, let us be, you know, let us help you rule the kingdom, is basically what they're asking. And the the, the other ten are upset with them, and for a good reason. So then, verse 42, Jesus calls them all to him and says to them. so he's, he says, well, I, got a, I got a mini ride on my hand amongst my disciples here, so I, 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 I got, I, this is a good teaching point. So he brings them all together, and he says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You'll see in our church the different times on the wall and things like that, and bulletins, love God, love people, serve the world. This idea of serve the world comes from this text right here. This idea that we must be servants, slave to all here. So what I'm going to do is I just want to take the last few minutes that I have this morning and point out how Mark presents Jesus and how we can learn from that. First of all, and, I, and, and my first outline had like seven points on this, so I reduced it to three. Okay, so, so you can be thankful for that. But there's so many more things that we could talk about here. But I'll say this. First of all, Jesus is our God. You know, when he says they're the son of man, for even the son of man, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Um, We're going to see in a minute here uh, uh, how it does talk about that term son of man refers to his humanity. Uh, Jesus uses this term a lot in the book of Mark to refer to himself, and a lot of times it is to point out his connection to humanity. And I'll talk about that in a second here. But also... Anyone who would have heard that term in Mark's day would have also understood the messianic connection to it. You see, uh, in the Old Testament, the term son of man was used often of prophets and things like that, but you get to Daniel chapter 7, and it's like a turning point in the usage of, of the word. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it says this. I put it on the screen. It says, I saw... In the night, this is a prophecy, of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's our term. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before them. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one, uh, uh, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So anyone here in Jesus referred to himself as the son of man in his day immediately would have thought of this text. Of, of, wait a minute here, this is, this is someone who, the, he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. This is going to be all the nations that are going to be subject to him. This is going to be the Messiah that we're looking for here, and so it's going to come straight from God. And so not only was it this idea of humanity, which that is wrapped up in that word, but it's much more than that. It's much more than his humanity. It also has an understanding of the deity or the God-connection that Jesus was saying there. So when he calls himself the Son of Man all throughout Mark, what I want us to hear as we're going through this study, I want us to hear his connection to humanity, but we also need to understand that he's connecting himself to God directly. And so what Mark is presenting Jesus here is he's saying that someone who is saying that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, he did not come to be served, but to serve And that leads us to the second point about Mark's snapshot of Jesus that I want to share with you, and that is he is our example. He's our example. So not only is God, Jesus, our Savior or our God, but he is our example. And we see it in a couple different ways. Again, I want to point out with that word son of man and the idea of humanity and his connection to us. He's identifying with the human race. Of course, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 comes to mind here uh, where it says that you know, we do not have a high priest uh, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so that is connecting to Jesus here when he says a son of man here. He's saying that I understand humanity. Now, think about the significance of that for a second. Think about how you feel. Think about your trials that you go through. Think about the difficulties of life and think about how you're tempted day in and day out. Jesus, your Savior, is saying here, I get it. I get it. You know, isn't that what we long for the most? Is when we're going through a difficult time, we just want someone to understand, right? You know, a lot of times we don't even want people to solve the problem for us, okay? We just want people to listen and understand. That's 16 years of marriage working for you right there, okay? All right? Sometimes you just got to listen and understand, okay, and try to understand. It's not about solving the problem. You know, that's what we long for. In Jesus, we have that. In Jesus, we have someone that says, I get it. I understand, I understand what it's like to go through this trial. I understand this because it says in all points, he was tempted as we are, but yeah, without sin. And so when, when I'm struggling and when, I, when I'm battling and, and it, it, it's a down time for me, often God brings this truth to my mind. and says, Jesus gets it. He understands. You know, when we're struggling with, with hopes that are just dashed, Jesus gets that. When we we really, really want something and we think it's for good and it doesn't happen, he understands that. When we say, if there's another way to do this, please bring it my way because I do not want to go down this path. Jesus gets that. That's what he said in the garden, right? But he said, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so Mark's snapshot here when it says, for even the Son of Man came not to serve. He's our example because we can relate to Him. He's not just someone that we can't relate to. He's relatable. But notice that our example came with a purpose. It says, He came... And then he gives a reason, not to serve, but to serve. So there's a purpose statement given there. And and we see a couple times in Mark's gospel, Jesus very explicitly says what he's come to do here. And so like in chapter 1, verse 38, he says, um, and Jesus said to them, "Let us go into the next towns, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came." And then also in chapter two, in verse forty-one, uh, excuse me, no, verse seventeen, he says, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners." And so we see in the snapshot of Jesus here how Mark presents it. He's a person with a purpose, and he's fulfilling his purpose to tell people the good news, to tell people the gospel, to tell people that forgiveness is possible that tell people that they can be right with God, they can have peace with God, that their sins can be forgiven. This is the message that the Son of Man is saying, and he does that surrounded, not in a sense of I want you to come and serve me, but he does it in humility to serve others because he's our example. You know, John, he says this in John chapter 13, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus' life and the way that Mark is going to present him to us is going to be an example to follow. He is the suffering servant, the suffering servant Savior. And we also see this idea of an example when it says in the first two verses of verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not. So he's automatically there setting himself up That's the illustration there. Did you catch that? He says, okay, for even the Son of Man, it's an argument from greater to lesser. He says, if the greatest of us, me, he's saying, has to do this and is doing this, and that's my, uh, my, my, my MO, then surely the followers should do that. So it's a greater to the lesser thing, The snapshot that Mark has given us here, right here, is that Jesus is an example to follow. Humility, example of servitude. Uh, The word that we will later get in our Bibles uh, for the office of deacon uh, is in this text right here of what Jesus is serving. So he's our example. You know... Jesus is our fellow man who understands your pain and frustration. And he came with a very specific purpose and he fulfilled that purpose. In fact, in John chapter 17, he's going to pray to God and there's going to be a beautiful prayer there between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus is going to say, I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the work that you have given me to do. He fulfills his purpose. But you know, Um, we and you and I have a purpose in this life and it's very clear from Scripture what that purpose is. And it's to honor God. Whether you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And your purpose in life and my purpose in life is the exact same thing. We just go about it different ways and God's given us different contexts in which to fulfill that purpose. But if you're sitting here today, you have the exact same purpose that I do and that is to glorify God and bring glory to him through our lives. And it's hard at times and it's difficult at times and we get tired and we get frustrated, but we can look at our suffering servant example and we can see that he finished the work that God gave him to do. And so we're to honor God in our friendships and our relationships. We're to honor God in our work ethic. And we have two examples. We have two extremes in the room here today about work ethic. We have, we have people who are lazy and we have people who are workaholics. And both of those need to be avoided. Okay? We've got to follow the example of Christ and honor God even in our work ethic. We've got to honor God in our parenting and our willingness to sacrifice time for other people and for the good of other people. And so... As we look at this, we need to follow the example of Jesus and fulfill your life's purpose. But keep in mind that the only way to do that is to have the servant mentality that Jesus talks about. I can't fulfill life's purpose of being a parent unless I become a servant. I can't be, um, uh, fulfill God's purpose in my life of being a husband unless I become a servant. I can't have a good work ethic unless I'm a servant. I can't be kind to my relationships to other people unless I'm a servant because there's just been be time where I just don't feel like doing it anymore, right? I mean, how many of you have ever wished there was like a timeout button? I mean, yeah, you just, it's like, you know, you just wish you could push that button and just be like, done, timeout, we're done, I can't do this any longer. You know, you remember Staples had the easy button? I don't want the easy button, I want the timeout button, you know, just timeout. It's hard. But I look at Jesus. And he, he's not asking me to do anything that he didn't do and he wasn't willing to do. And, 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 and he says that, that I, I, I'm going to help you do it. He says, I will give you the strength. It'll be hard. It'll be difficult. But I will give you the strength to do it. And it'll be times of tears. But you remember what, what David wrote in Psalms? He says, you know, tears last for the night. But joy comes in the morning. Right? And so as we look at the snapshot of Jesus, he's our example. And we look to him, and we see how he struggled at times. We see how he felt the temptations. We're going to look in in the next couple messages how he was driven by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. Okay, think about that. He was driven by the Spirit to be tempted. Okay? Okay? You ever feel the enormous temptations in your life? Jesus understands. He's our example. The only way we can fulfill our purpose is through servitude and having that servant servant attitude towards the people around us and towards our Savior. Much more can be said, but let me move on to the final point, and that is this. In the snapshot of Jesus, Mark shows him to be our Savior. And we see this in different words and things that he uses here in verse 45, but he is indeed our Savior. Um, I I, I taught uh, church history, Middle Ages in India. And one of the guys I talked about was uh, Anselm of, or Anselm, depends how you want to pronounce his name, of Canterbury, 11th century uh, theologian. Uh, And he was the guy um, that, uh, and I don't know what happened to his left hand, by the way. But um, he was the guy that, Uh, really started struggling with the idea of the atonement. And this was actually a a hotly debated theological concept during the 11th century. Uh, Later on, it's going to be the reformers of the 17th century who are going to stand on this guy's shoulders, okay, um, and give us our understanding of the atonement that we have today. Uh, You know, uh, uh, Anselm had, uh, he 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 was right there. I mean, he was right there. And uh, he was, he was um, resisting uh, what, uh, a theory called the, the ransom to Satan theory uh, about the atonement. I'll explain that in a second. And uh, he was the one that dared to even ask the question of, uh, and wonder out loud, was the cross absolutely necessary? Uh, could Jesus have just, or could God have just, you know, snapped his fingers and sin would have been taken care of? Uh, could, with his act of omnipotence, could he have just said, it's done and we don't have to worry about it anymore? I mean, this is the God who has power to do anything, right? He's got the power over nature. and He's got the, the power uh, um, to create, even with his word we see. And so he, and so, uh, uh, Anselm was asked the question. He says, if we have this powerful God here that can do all that could he have just bypassed this whole cross? Could he have just said, you're forgiven? And if he could, then why did he choose to cross? Because if he couldn't, then it makes sense why he chose the cross. But if he could, then why did he choose to cross? And these are the questions that he was wrestling with. And I think that this text here helps us understand a little bit what he was talking about here. Um, this text helps us understand the, the atonement Of Jesus and how Jesus is indeed our Savior. So let me just talk a little bit about this idea of ransom. First of all, salvation does require ransom, but Anselm was pushing against the commonly held belief of that day that it was a ransom to Satan, and and that is a wrong theory. Um, Satan's nowhere mentioned in the text. The word ransom is there. It says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. So the question is, well, who's the ransom for? Well, Satan is, no, is nowhere mentioned in the text, number one. Number two, we know that uh, uh, Satan was opposing the death of Christ, okay? And so in some ways, we see that later on in the Gospels. And so um, uh, we don't think that that was the case. But here's, here's just logically, it doesn't make sense. Because the debt that man had and has has never been to Satan. The debt has been to God. And so while, yes, there is a ransom, the debt that needs to be paid is not to Satan. It is to God. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden when God set up the one rule in the the Garden of Eden? Remember this? And he says, you know, don't eat of that one tree. And he says, because if you eat of that tree in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die, right? So it puts it out there. It says, this is what's going to happen. This is the punishment. This is the result even of sin entering into the world is that death, this is the penalty here is called death. And so that was set up from the beginning. And man sinned, as you know the story. And so the question that Anselm raises is, why couldn't he just say, it's done, forget about it? Well, the reason why is because, one of the reasons why, is because it would violate God's nature, his own nature of his justice, his own nature of, of holiness and even truthfulness because he had said that this would happen. And so if he says, oh, no, just kidding, it goes against his truthfulness and the idea of justice, that He is a God who is just. And how can he then just wink at sin? How can he just say it doesn't matter? No, he has to deal with sin. His holiness demands it. So the answer is that he has to deal with this in some ways. He can't just say, let's forget about it. But so we've established the fact that there does, there's a debt that has to be paid, a ransom, if you will. That's all the word means is debt. But what can man give? Well, What can we give to pay that debt? The answer is nothing. Secondly, salvation required a sacrifice, and we see this also in the text, where it says he gave his life. This idea of giving there, the idea of sacrifice. Now, this is where we need to understand something here of what type of sacrifice um, needs to be paid. You know, I've used this illustration before, I I think. Um, um, if, If I'm teaching here and a fly comes and lands on the podium here, and with my ninja cat-like quickness, I hit it. And then you, particularly Ben on the front, sees the fly fall to the ground, right? You know Ben's not going to come up and just stand up and go, "Murderer." Right? He's not going to do that. At least I hope he wouldn't. OK. All right. Why? It's a fly. Um, no one would be upset. If we're at a family gathering and uh, your dog comes up to me and starts sniffing me and stuff, and I kind of kick your dog, some of you are like, whoa, hey, now nah, our friendship is tested at this point here, right? Okay. Well, dogs are more important than, than flies, right? Well, if, 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 we had been in a family gathering like this, and, and maybe my, when Isaiah was first born, my son, four-year-old son, he was first born, and I'm holding him, and you're talking to me in church here, and he starts crying, and I'm like, stop crying, all right? Now, all of you parents have felt like doing that, okay, but if I did that, that would raise some eyebrows, Right? Now, if someone comes up to me and says, you know, Jeremy, you you just kind of smacked your kid, your infant, in the face here, and that's just just not good parenting, that's just not good, that's really bad, you shouldn't do that. And I look at you, and I say, well, wait a minute here. Last week, I killed a fly, and you didn't say a word about it. Killing is much worse than smacking in the face, right? So I don't know what you're all upset about that argument wouldn't fly at all, right? No pun intended, all right? Okay, that argument wouldn't work at all, right? Why? Because the object that I'm sinning or offending, okay, I'm sinning against or offending, determines the, the debt or determines the severity of it, right? And so a fly is a fly, okay? And so, you know, that's fine, okay? A son, I can't, I can't treat my son that way. I can't do that to an infant baby like that because he's of much greater value, right? Okay, take that same understanding. and This is why our debt against God is greater than what we could pay because he is the highest of beings. He is the perfect and holy and greatest. And so any offense against that incurs a debt upon us greater than what we could pay. Because he is so great. And so when we look at this idea of Jesus, he gave himself, gave his life a ransom for many. We see that this is a sacrifice. The sacrifice that is required for our sin was so great, it it was a greater debt than any human could pay. And so then the question says, what can we offer God as a sacrifice? What can we offer God as a ransom? What can we offer God as a sacrifice? And the answer is nothing. But that leads us to understanding that salvation then required a substitute. Did you see this in the last two words of the verse? They give his life as a ransom for many. For. In the place of. A substitution. This is called the substitutionary atonement, and this is what the Reformers would stand on Anselm's understanding of it. He had the idea of substitutionary atonement uh, without the penalty, and the reformers would later add the idea of penalty and sin's penalty here. But Anselm was on the right track here in the 11th century, and we stand on his shoulders. And as he argued, the human had to pay a debt because it was a human who contracted the debt. And so Anselm argues, he says, the only one who can pay the debt is a human because a human contracted the debt. So this is why the incarnation is so important. This is why he came. This is why he came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the snapshot of Jesus that we need to walk away with today, of understanding that Jesus is our Savior. And he, he did the substitutionary work. Um, this is a, he gave his life a ransom for many, and this is what Mark how Mark is presenting Jesus. So let me bring you to a close. The question obviously here at this point is, is Jesus your Savior? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you believing and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation? Because there's no other way your sin can be dealt with. There's no other way that you can pay the debt of sin other than Jesus Christ. That was why his life of perfect obedience was so important. He lived a life of perfect obedience. That idea of adhering to the law... And then he kept the law, so therefore death was not due him at all. He did not deserve to die. In fact, he didn't even deserve it. He didn't didn't even have to be born as a human. You and I had no choice in the matter. We were simply born. Jesus chose to come, and he chose to be born, to live a life of obedience so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. And he was our substitute on the cross. We should have been there. We should have been there. So we look to him as our example and as our Savior. So the question is... Do you know him as your Savior? Again, and I say this before, I'm not asking if you've been to church before. I'm not asking if you've read your Bible before. I'm not asking how long you've been part of this church. I'm asking, do you know Jesus as your Savior? I've been in church my whole life, and I have seen time and time again people who have just missed this. And by God's mercy and grace, years later, they just say, God, i am seeing you as a Savior for the first time, and I'm praying that if anyone here is like that today, that today is a day of salvation, so that's the first question we have to wrestle with. The other question is: I just want us to wrestle with: Do we have an idea of our sin debt? And maybe we're listening to voices saying we're not as bad as so and so, whatever. But maybe some of you say, "No, I know the sin debt, and it's crushing me, and I can't move on." And I would say then you just got to give it to Christ, but I mean, He doesn't want you crushed. He, it says in Isaiah, it says the, it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. He didn't say it pleased Him to crush you with your sin debt. He says it's pleasing the Father to put it on Christ. So if you're being crushed by your sin debt tonight, it's because you're not believing in Jesus. And so I would just say, believe in Jesus as your Savior. He doesn't want you to walk around feeling guilty, He wants you feeling grateful. Grateful for saving uh, a Savior as Mark is presenting him to us here. So appreciate the gospel again today. Tell those people about your Savior this week. Believe in the absolute necessity of the cross and how that it shows you that God's love for you and how when you are at your worst, remember that God gave his best for you. So today's message was designed as an introduction. We looked at three snapshots to be helpful as we embark on the study of Mark's gospel. And so knowing a little bit about Mark as a person will prove helpful as we read his writings. Knowing a little bit about the characteristic of the book as a gospel as opposed to the other gospels will aid in understanding of why Mark does what he does with his gospel. And then finally, knowing how Mark presents Jesus here will keep our interpretation of the book aligned as we work through it over the next several weeks and months. But my goal is that we leave here today was a greater appreciation of Jesus Christ. And that we say, I may be down, I may be crushed, but Jesus endured it for me so I can be alive and I can trust in him. So follow Christ. He's our example and he's our savior. Father, I I do pray that we would be moved in our spirit to follow you. And uh, I ask that uh, we would have a a renewed appreciation uh, for um, for Jesus I pray as we embark on the study of Mark's gospel that we see how he presents Jesus and that we worship him Father our sin debt is great and I pray that um, we would trust in you to pay that debt you know so many times we, 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 we understand intellectually what we need to do but it just doesn't feel right Father, I pray that we wouldn't get distracted by feelings. I pray that we would follow your word in faith. And so, Father, I pray that we would do all things for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.